Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Amit and I are virtually in Nashville, Tennessee, with an amazing group from Vandy. Guys, welcome to the show. And first, help me out. Is it Vanderbilt? Is it Vandy? What do I need to say in order to sound cool when I come and visit you guys? Oh, you got to say Vandy. That's, yeah, that's Vandy the cool Yeah, way. that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Does Vanderbilt make me sound like a foreigner? Exactly. <laughs> Tourist. 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 Yes. Tourist, exactly. Cardiology Fellowship Training Program at Vanderbilt University. Okay. <laughs> Since we have a bunch of voices here and several amazing brains who are going to present this case and help us out and learn some serious cardiology, would you mind introducing yourselves? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Tara Holder. I'm a second year general cardiology fellow at Vandy. I completed my IM residency at Duke and I'm interested in interventional. I'm joined by my two awesome co-fellows, Maj and Amr. Hey everyone, my name is Amr Parikh and I am a third year cardiology fellow interested in imaging and cardio-oncology. I completed my IM residency at NYU. Hi everyone, my name is Majd Al-Harasis and I'm a second year general cardiology fellow. I did my residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and I'm interested in electrophysiology. Friends, it's such a pleasure to have you all on the show. And Dan said that we're there in Nashville virtually. I've unfortunately never been to Nashville myself. So tell us about a favorite spot among the fellows. Where do you guys want to take us for the conversation today? I guess we just want to talk a little bit about Nashville. I think everyone assumes that if you live in Nashville, you've got to love country music and fried chicken, which is a stereotype that we want to dispel. <laughs> Nashville is really a town for anyone who loves any kind of music, not just country. We've got awesome jazz clubs, folk singer-songwriter spots, giant outdoor amphitheaters, and all kinds of amazing live music venues. I came here after spending a decade in New York City, so having a diverse, thriving art scene was super important to me. And honestly, Nashville has blown away my expectations in that regard. I agree with Amr 100%. It is a super diverse city. It is easily accessible to other nearer cities. And for me, it's like a great hub for local and global travel. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And for me, the weather was such a refreshing change. I mean, I definitely don't miss those freezing cold Midwest winters, and I love the mild winter that we had here in comparison this year. And Nashville really surprised me in terms of how affordable it is to live here. Recently was able to buy a brand new townhome, which I can easily afford on a single income. And so love to have you guys over for some drinks on the patio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, I totally agree. And after spending an arm and a leg living in a 350 square foot studio in Manhattan, now I live in a nice high rise apartment that's triple the space for half the money with a rooftop pool. You don't get that in the city. I'm not sure where to pick right now. Are we taking a stroll in the park, listening to live music? Are we in Madge Balcony enjoying some drinks? We can say that we're at one of our favorite brunch spots. And Okay. It is Sunday morning, so it's brunch time. Take yeah. us there. Yeah. yeah, this town has a serious brunch scene. So we thought, let's all hang out at one of our favorite brunch spots and host you guys. Masks on and socially distanced, of course. And we thought we would just catch up with Tara, who just finished a month at the CCU. Is fried chicken not a thing, or it's just a stereotype that it's the only thing? That's right. it. It's yeah. a stereotype that is the only thing. It's definitely a thing, though, and we do it pretty yeah. dang good over and, here. And we may have some fried chicken later. All right. So we're sitting on our brunch table. We're enjoying mimosas and maybe waffles with fried chicken or what have you. But, Tara, you just got done in the CCU. You have a case to tell us about? Of course, man. I am so ready for this celebratory brunch. You just can't believe how crazy the CCU was, and I need a break. But I definitely wanted to share this awesome case with you guys. So there was this 22-year-old male transgender, female to male, who uses male pronouns, who was pregnant. He was seeing his OB for a routine appointment at 31 weeks, but they heard a murmur on exam. So they referred him to Dr. Dam's cardio OB clinic for an evaluation. Oh, wow. Was he having any symptoms? Yeah, he basically had been having intermittent lightheadedness without syncope and some chest tightness on and off. He was having some mild exertional dyspnea, but denied any orthopnea or PND. So, Amr, tell me what's going on in your mind right now before I tell you any more. Honestly, I can't decide between the chicken and waffles or the huevos rancheros. I think she was actually talking about differentials for the case. So this is a really interesting and nuanced question, mainly because during pregnancy, there's an expected physiologic dyspnea. So the challenge is really distinguishing this from an actual pathologic etiology. 70% of pregnant patients can experience a sensation of air hunger during the course of pregnancy, and it's thought to be due to progesterone-induced hyperventilation, although the exact mechanism isn't entirely clear. It usually occurs during the first trimester, worsens during the second trimester, then stabilizes during the third. So the timing of the onset of symptoms is a reasonable clue. If your pregnant patient notes new onset or progressive exertional dyspnea in the third trimester, your antenna really should be up for investigating actual pathologies beyond just physiologic dyspnea. In that case, the most common pathologies are pre-existing cardiopulmonary disease, and in this age group, asthma tends to be a major culprit. But you should also have a high suspicion for unrecognized congenital heart disease or valvular disease. So I'd be really curious to hear more about this exam. Another bucket of differentials to consider is not pre-existing, but new-onset cardiac pathologies, specifically cardiomyopathies. Non-ischemic causes are more common in this age group, such as myocarditis, Takotsubo's, or of course, peripartum cardiomyopathy. Ischemic etiologies are possible in this age group too, although less likely due to atherosclerosis and more commonly from vasospasm, vasculitis, or spontaneous coronary dissection. So these are just some of the things that I would be thinking about. Awesome. Okay, so get this. On exam, he had this crazy loud systolic ejection murmur at the right upper sternal border. Crazy loud. Is that the new official way to describe a four out of six murmur? Yeah. And Dr. Campbell (laughs) would have been so proud of me. I was trying to figure out if it was severe AS or not solely based on the exam. 
Okay, so what was your verdict based on the exam? Well, I thought it was consistent with Severius because he had a late peaking murmur with an absent S2 and delayed carotid upstroke. Ugh, oh man, can you remind me why those features are consistent with severe aortic stenosis? So we hear the murmur of AS because of turbulent blood flow through a stenotic valve orifice. As the severity of the AS worsens, the peak of the murmur moves to later in systole because a longer time is required to complete LV systole and the aortic valve closure is delayed. This is also why you see a delayed carotid arterial upstroke. As the aortic valve becomes more stenotic, it loses its mobility and the inflexible aortic leaflets close with less force than normal. Therefore, the intensity of the S2 decreases to the point that it is no longer audible. Yeah, that's spot on, Tara. You know, it's always helpful to remember the physiology behind these exam findings. Definitely. So when we mentioned the murmur to him, he said he was actually told he had a murmur when he was four, but never followed up. He didn't really have much other significant medical history. It was only notable for bipolar disorder, for which he was taking sertraline and lamotrigine, but no other meds. And he didn't really have any family history of significant heart disease. Interesting. Well, I guess we know just by exam that he has a classic severe AS murmur. And given his history of a heart condition at age four, I'd be concerned specifically about bicuspid aortic stenosis, which is a diagnosis we can probably make just from exam and history alone. So just a word on bicuspid aortic valves, it's one of the most common types of congenital heart disease and affects 1% of the population and occurs twice as commonly in males as in females. And the reason it happens is because of fusion between the coronary cusps, most commonly between the right and left coronary cusps in about 80% of cases, and much less commonly between the left and non-coronary cusps, which only happens in less than 1% of patients. There's a strong genetic component to it, and it's prevalent in about 10% of first-degree relatives. Therefore, all first-degree relatives of patients with bicuspid aortic valve should undergo echocardiographic screening. In some patients, it will pose no issues throughout their lifetime, but it's been estimated that at least a third and likely a majority of bicuspid aortic valve patients will develop a complication. One of the main associations to be aware of is aortopathy, specifically dilatation of the aortic annulus, sinus, and proximal ascending aorta. The prevalence of concurrent aortopathy in bicuspid valve patients is about 50%. So anytime you see a bicuspid valve, you've got to thoroughly assess the ascending aorta for any evidence of dilatation. This is a lot to take in during a clinic visit. So what did Dr. Dam do when she saw him in clinic? She ordered an echo, and it showed very severe bicuspid aortic stenosis with a peak velocity of 5.2 meters per second, mean gradient across the aortic valve of 56 millimeters of mercury, aortic valve area of 0.5 square centimeters. The echo revealed a bicuspid aortic valve with fusion of the non and left coronary cusp and no aortopathy. And for those listening, you can actually check out the echo images on CardioNerd's website. That's a very interesting echo. And actually, Amr, it looks like he had that very rare variant of bicuspid aortic stenosis that you were talking about, where you have fusion of the non and the left coronary cusp. And you said it was less than 1% of cases, right? Yeah. But so I think it's important to remind ourselves here of the cutoffs that we use to define severe aortic stenosis on echo. And I personally remember them as the 44-1 rule. So a mean gradient greater than 40, a peak velocity greater than 4, and a valve area less than 1. And there's actually an awesome series of podcasts done by cardio nerds on aortic stenosis, which you should all check out. And interestingly, so this patient actually meets criteria for very severe aortic stenosis because his peak velocity was greater than 5 and his valve area was less than 0.6. And the two other important features that I was always taught to look at on any echo with severe aortic stenosis are the ejection fraction and the aorta. 
And the ejection fraction is important here because reduced ejection fraction is an indication for intervening on severe aortic stenosis, even if the patient is asymptomatic. And as Amr mentioned, we need to pay close attention to the diameter of the ascending aorta because bicuspid valves are associated with aortopathy. Okay, guys, let's get back to the story. Because he was such a high-risk pregnancy, they decided to admit him to the hospital for medical optimization prior to delivery. And even in that short time after he saw Dr. Damp in clinic, he had an episode of syncope. On admission, his exam was unchanged from clinic, and he had no signs of volume overload and was hemodynamically stable. His labs were pretty unremarkable with a normal troponin and BNP of 35, which is within normal limits on our assay. That's crazy that he had an episode of syncope in such a short period of time. And I guess pregnancy really does affect valvular gradients, especially in someone like him, huh? Yeah, exactly. It's actually not that surprising. So pregnancy causes up to a 50% increase in cardiac output. And that's as a result of increases in heart rate and stroke volume, decreased systemic vascular resistance, and increased plasma and blood volume. So in a pregnancy uncomplicated by valvular heart disease, the combination of these hemodynamic changes leads to increased mean and peak valvular gradients that then return to baseline postpartum. But in the setting of a fixed stenotic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction like aortic stenosis, these hemodynamic changes can actually lead to the development of or worsening of existing heart failure. Yeah, Amr, his entire physiology was super interesting and complicated. And that's why Dr. Damp had him admitted for medical optimization prior to delivery. So now that we've identified severe symptomatic bicuspid aortic stenosis, when do you guys think is the right time for a valve intervention, prior to or after delivery? That is a deep question for brunch, but it's certainly an interesting question. So the current recommendations for aortic stenosis in pregnancy are intervening on the valve only in the setting of symptomatic aortic stenosis with hemodynamic deterioration or if you have NYHA class 3 to 4 heart failure symptoms. And there's a debate about when the best time for surgery is, and it seems to be in the second trimester, with data showing that doing surgery after 20 weeks gestation is safest for the fetus. Though sometimes a patient has refractory arrhythmias or heart failure, which means that we have to intervene sooner. But the important thing to know is that these procedures are super high risk during pregnancy. There was actually a registry that showed that there was up to a 10% maternal mortality rate and up to a 40% fetal mortality rate. So more and more data is actually starting to point towards conservative management and monitoring these patients who are asymptomatic. And it seems that that's actually a reasonable option without an increase in mortality. Maj, these are exactly some of the things that we're all thinking about for this patient. There was a huge multidisciplinary team conversation between high-risk OB, interventional cardiology, and cardiothoracic surgery, where there was an agreement to proceed with delivery first, and reassess the valve later. Then the more practical question came up of, how do we actually go about delivery? Spontaneous vaginal delivery or a C-section? These are great questions. And I want to take a step back and actually just comment on the choice to proceed with delivery first and then reassess the valve, because that choice may surprise some listeners. A lot of the data that we have to answer this question comes from a patient registry called ROPAC, which stands for Registry on Pregnancy and Cardiac Disease which is a global prospective observational registry of women with structural heart disease. A study published in JAK in 2016 looked at the risk of pregnancy in moderate and severe AS, and the data is actually really encouraging. They found about 100 pregnant patients identified in the ROPAC registry with at least moderate aortic stenosis, and not a single patient died during pregnancy or within one week postpartum, which is really striking. Now, that being said, cardiovascular events and hospitalizations were common, with clinical heart failure and arrhythmias being the common cardiac issues. 
but all of these were managed medically in almost every single patient. Only one of the 96 patients underwent intervention with balloon valvuloplasty prior to delivery. So then to address your second question, Tara, about C-section versus vaginal delivery, the author specifically looked at this question. In general, vaginal delivery is thought to have a lower risk of complications for both mother and fetus compared with C-section. Vaginal delivery causes smaller shifts in blood volume, fewer infections, less hemorrhage, and decreased thrombogenic risk. I think another important physiologic point to remember is that the hypertrophied left ventricle in aortic stenosis may be more sensitive to abrupt changes in preload, which can certainly happen with the use of anesthetic agents or bleeding, both of which occur more commonly in C-section. Ultimately, the authors concluded that vaginal delivery carries a lower risk of maternal and fetal complications than C-section in patients with cardiac disease. But a majority of the women in the study actually delivered by C-section, largely as a result of preferences at specific centers, and they did well. So ultimately, the decision requires consideration of the hemodynamics of the specific cardiac lesion, patient preferences, as well as expertise and resources available at particular institutions. So this is a fascinating discussion, guys, and you guys are just blowing our minds, actually. Ahmed and I are texting each other just in the background, just going, wow. So thanks again for being here. One reflection that I would have, especially with regards to a bicuspid aortic valve, is that in my experience, which is very limited compared to Dr. Dam, so obviously we'll defer to her expertise later, but just one thing that hit me as a fellow seeing these patients is that a lot of times you have these young, very healthy patients that are presenting to you with severe aortic stenosis. And the path forward is clear from a guideline perspective. You know, it's severe, it has to be fixed. Their root is dilated to a dimension that needs to be fixed. And so they come into your office and you already know that your recommendation will be to fix. But then you see them as a person and you talk to them and you just get very overwhelmed with the fact that here's a young, healthy person coming to you, never thinking they had a medical issue per se. And now all of a sudden, they might be on a lifelong anticoagulation or they might have issues associated with cardiac surgery. For example, one patient that I saw ended up hiring a pacemaker for some sort of complication during the procedure. So, you know, that was very profound. You really have to take off your clinical guideline hat and become a person again and help your patient through it. And there's also this chronicity of your care that you have with these patients. You really could take care of them for many years and follow them after their surgeries or before while they wait for intervention. But going back to C-section versus vaginal delivery, as a as an interventional fellow and pulling a lot of sheaths on patients with AS, I know that Valsalva can sometimes cause a lot of preload shifting. And sometimes a Valsalva, while I'm doing a sheath pull on an aortic stenosis patient, can be a little hairy. So I was thinking, without looking at the data, which you so eloquently presented, I was thinking, you know, if I had a choice between C-section versus vaginal delivery, with all of the pushing, I would have thought maybe C-section is safer. So it was really interesting to hear your discussion. That's just my thought on that. Yeah, and I'll actually add on to that also. I love what you said about thinking outside the guidelines, putting on our person hat. And there's a whole social element in this case, because this patient essentially presented with severe aortic stenosis in the middle of pregnancy. And ideally, we would have caught this or known about this prior to pregnancy and uh, had an opportunity for preconception counseling. There's a whole list of conditions in which pregnancy is contraindicated and aortic stenosis is among them. And so, you know, and I don't know if this is particularly relevant for this case, but there's a whole stigma surrounding the care of transgender people. And I learned recently that because of the stigma and not feeling like they're in a safe space, they may not be as forthcoming with their doctors about their biological sex. And so we can miss out on a lot of the routine maintenance care that we would provide for anybody else. Like for instance, in this patient, was this patient getting routine pap smears and probably too young for this, but you know, would he have gotten mammograms at the appropriate time? And so along the same extension, 
one of my co-fellows, Kara Denby, is doing research in transgender health, specifically cardiovascular care, and has found that these patients often aren't as engaged with care because of perceived lack of safe space. And they think it's really on us to make sure that we have the same approach for all of our patients and specifically mindful of specific healthcare issues related to this population. You guys are just absolutely 100% spot on because it's one thing, as you said, to think about the valve and what we need to do with regards to severe aortic stenosis. But as Tara will get to, the case had just so many social and psychological complexities that are almost just completely separate to the whole valvular issue that you have to delve into. And so you guys are absolutely spot on. And given these concerns about the patient's discomfort with laboring and the preference for a controlled delivery with hemodynamic monitoring, the team actually proceeded with a cesarean section, which was performed successfully without any complications, though I must say there was an ECMO team on standby and ready to jump in if necessary. Oh, wow. So after a successful delivery, we then started to think about how are we going to address this patient's severe bicuspid AS? So Maj, what options do we have at this point? So this is when I would have called one of our TAVR experts, Dr. Barker or Dr. O'Leary. But in general, I think of interventions on aortic valves in terms of being in two broad categories. So you have the surgical aortic valve replacement or SAVR, which can be done with either a mechanical valve or a bioprosthetic valve. And then you have the percutaneous options, which in this day and age mainly consists of transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR. Though another percutaneous option, which is used less commonly nowadays, is balloon aortic valvuloplasty. We rarely see balloon valvuloplasty these days, but I read that in situations like this where we need a bridge to more definitive therapies, it may actually be useful. Yeah, absolutely, Amr. It's definitely an option in a situation like this where you have someone with severe aortic stenosis and you need that bridge to more definitive surgical intervention. But the problem with balloon valvuloplasty is that it's not really a durable long-term solution. And these patients are at risk of developing aortic regurgitation and needing repeat procedures later on in life. And because we do it less frequently nowadays, the experience of the center and the proceduralist are actually really important for balloon aortic valvuloplasty. So given that valvuloplasty is really just a bridge to something more definitive like a SAVR or TAVR, do you guys know what the data says about TAVR in a situation like this? The problem is that TAVR hasn't really been studied extensively in pregnancy. There are some case reports out there that suggest that it could be a potential low-risk option during pregnancy, but the risks of TAVR in pregnancy include radiation exposure to the fetus, which you can theoretically avoid by using other imaging modalities like transesophageal echo or cardiac MRI, but fluoroscopy still plays a pretty big role in the procedure. And overall, I think it just really needs to be studied further in pregnancy before we can draw any conclusions. Gotcha. So TAVR needs to be studied a little bit more in this setting. I do remember previously being told that patients with bicuspid valves are not eligible for TAVR, but I have been seeing more and more that it can be done. What is the data on that? Yeah, Tara, so this is a great question. The issue is that clinical trials comparing SAVR to TAVR have systematically excluded patients with bicuspid valves, so our understanding was limited. But there was a recent study of almost 3,000 patients with bicuspid valves who underwent TAVR, and it showed no difference in survival, but in the TAVR group, there was a higher risk of stroke annular rupture, conversion to open surgery, and need for pacing support in the bicuspid cohort. But a more recent study published in circulation earlier this year showed more favorable data with current generation devices. They looked at about 5,400 patients with bicuspid valves undergoing TAVR and found a very high success rate of about 96%, with no difference in the procedural, post-procedural, or one-year outcomes between bicuspid versus tricuspid disease. 
So the authors concluded that with newer generation devices, TAVR is a viable treatment option for patients with bicuspid aortic stenosis. Oh, cool. So looks like we'll be seeing more and more TAVR for bicuspid patients. Well then, what surgical options do we have, guys? So there's different options here that we can go for in terms of surgery. So you can do a mechanical valve replacement, you can do a bioprosthetic valve replacement, and you can do something called a ROS procedure, which a few patients I've taken care of have had. And so the ROS procedure is basically where they take the aortic valve and they replace it with a pulmonary valve homograph, so tissue from the patient's own pulmonary valve. As you can imagine, the advantages of this procedure is that you avoid the need for long-term anticoagulation, and the valve itself can actually grow with the patient. Studies have actually shown that these patients can do well if it's done in the right setting. As you can also probably imagine that the disadvantages of this procedure include that it's more technically difficult, and you're basically swapping one valve disease for two. So it's really best done at a center with a high degree of expertise with this procedure. Overall, mechanical valves are the ones that are the most durable and have the lowest likelihood of needing to be reoperated on. But since they have a higher chance of developing clots, these patients need chronic anticoagulation with warfarin really being the only option that we can use in this circumstance. And this creates problems with bleeding and can be a real challenge in women of childbearing age who are contemplating pregnancy in the future because it's teratogenic. And so the management of these patients is really challenging and requires very close follow-up. Wow, that's fascinating, Maj. Tara, we are dying to know, what did they actually do in this case? So after a delivery that went awesome without complications, there were even more curveballs in the discussions around the best approach to address his bicuspid AS. We presented all the options, SAVR or TAVR, with either a bioprosthetic or mechanical valve, balloon valvuloplasty, or ROS procedure. In terms of bioprosthetic or mechanical valve, he raised concerns about his anticoagulation compliance upcoming gender reassignment surgery, and history of prior cutting. So mechanical valve with lifelong anticoagulation was out of the discussion. Another complication was that his insurance coverage was due to lapse within the next six months. So he wanted to have some intervention done before then. Ultimately, the team and patient decided to opt for a temporizing solution with balloon valvuloplasty with standby TAVR implantation so the procedure be complicated by significant aortic insufficiency. Balloon valvuloplasty successfully resulted in a decrease in the gradient across the aortic valve from 62 to 27 millimeters of mercury with trace aortic insufficiency. Dr. Dam saw him about five months after the procedure, and he remains asymptomatic with a stable and unchanged echo. Wow, crazy case, Tara. With so many complexities in both diagnostics and management for this patient, especially when you factor in his pregnancy and the psychosocial and financial dimensions to this case as well. I'm going to chime in here. I think the discussion of choice of aortic valve is truly such an interesting space and underappreciated conversation for patients who are of childbearing age because your patient here was, remind me, 22 years old? Yes. So the question becomes, what is the best valve procedure that's going to help them with the next pregnancy so that these issues don't come up again? And I read about this and I got interested in this after we did our aortic stenosis series. I totally agree with you. The questions about mechanical valve and need for anticoagulation, some people advocate for maybe a bridging TAVR and then doing a mechanical valve after they're outside their childbearing age. I came to really appreciate the Ross procedure, like you mentioned, as maybe one of the best options. But because of the technical complexity and the issues related to having possibly now two valves that are vulnerable to future issues, that really has to be done in a high volume center. And then Another option that I came across recently was the Ozaki procedure, where essentially you refashion a tissue aortic valve from the patient's own pericardium, but also it requires a lot of skill and 
and whatnot. So I'll be really interested in maybe getting Dr. Damp's impression as to what her plans would be for this patient if he were to develop aortic stenosis again. Yeah, absolutely. You raised just so many great points that we've, we've all been discussing and I think are going to play a vital role in this patient's future. Absolutely. And I think it also depends on, and Dr. Dam can correct me as well, in terms of what anticoagulation they're using for their valve. So I think there's been data to suggest that if they're on warfarin doses less than five milligrams a day, that you can safely continue that during pregnancy. And even like the nuances in terms of bridging to heparin and, and what you do with the warfarin and stuff is just very nuanced, as you said, Ahmed, and involves a very deep, complex, and multidisciplinary discussion. So I guess as we wait for our check, what do you guys think are some of the main learning points that we've taken away from this case? Well, for me, I think it's thinking that pregnant patients with asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis, a conservative management strategy is actually reasonable for those patients and may cause less harm compared to intervening on the valve for both the mother and the fetus. Yeah, that's a great point. For me, this is just another reminder of the power of the exam. If the patient's uh, obstetrician hadn't picked up the murmur on exam, we may never have even known about this patient's bicuspid aortic stenosis in the first place. I think the other point to remember is that dyspnea in late pregnancy is uncommon and should make you think of pre-existing undetected cardiopulmonary disease, such as congenital or valvular heart disease. And I'll never forget that bicuspid AS is the most common congenital condition, and we really need to make sure that we're looking for the associated aortopathy as well. Definitely agree with both of those teaching points, guys. Also, balloon valvuloplasty can be a reasonable option as a bridge to definitive management in situations like this. Also, emerging data for TAVR and bicuspid aortic valve is a reasonable option as well with similar outcomes compared to our tricuspid AS patients. Guys, these were awesome teaching points. And the option for TAVR in the middle of pregnancy was not something that I thought about before. So that was an awesome point to think about. And when I was preparing for this discussion, just thinking about all the issues that go along with preconception counseling and, and now postpartum counseling. And as you said, bicuspid valve is one of the most common congenital cardiac abnormalities, but also has a genetic component. And so there may be a role for screening the offspring and other first-degree relatives. And for additional reading for our audience... There are a few different classifications for cardiovascular disease and their inherent risks in pregnancy. We will include in our show notes the WHO classification, which is probably the most well-validated. There are four parts of this classification scheme, and class four are situations in which pregnancy is actually contraindicated and it's relevant because for our patient, I had aortic stenosis. So obstructive lesions in general are situations where pregnancy would be contraindicated for all the reasons you mentioned, like increased cardiac output. So the ones in which pregnancy would be contraindicated include pulmonary arterial hypertension, severe systemic ventricular dysfunction. So think about HEFREF, EF less than 30% with the NYHA class three to four, a severe mitral stenosis and severe aortic stenosis, like in our patient. Marfan syndrome with the dilated aorta or dilated aortopathy associated by cuspid aortic valve disease and native severe coarctation of the aorta, which also is associated with bicuspid aortic valve. So all relevant uh, in our case here, but really tremendous case and so much learning. And I'm so glad that the patient did well under your care. Thanks guys. So full disclaimer here, our brunch conversations are never this nerdy, uh, <laughs> but I'm so glad. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you guys come visit, it might be. Yeah, yeah it will be. Uh, Definitely. <laughs> but I'm just so glad there's a fellow in the CCU that I'm training at a place where I can just text or call some of our amazing attendings at any time, like our heart failure attendings, like Dr. Lindenfeld or Dr. Lynn Stevenson. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think honestly, the two biggest reasons I came here is the culture of approachability and the flexible training pathways. I got here and I was so excited by the prospect of working with some of the biggest names in cardiology, like you mentioned, Dr. Lynn Stevenson in heart failure and Dr. Javed Moslehi in cardio-oncology, just to name a few. But I'm not going to lie, I was also intimidated, but I quickly was blown away by the fact that everyone here is so down to earth and approachable, no matter how famous or what their reputation may be. It's really a special thing to be able to just pick up the phone and directly call Dr. William Stevenson, one of the world's foremost VT experts, when you're trying to manage VT storm as a first year during a night on call. <laughs> on top of that, I love the flexibility of the program. Vanderbilt has one of the country's most robust cardio-oncology programs, and I ended up developing a really strong interest in the field. I was able to design a curriculum here in conjunction with Dr. Moslehi, where I could integrate cardio-oncology training into my third year of fellowship. So I think opportunities like these are just really hard to find at most programs. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I just love the fact that for someone who is actually pretty undifferentiated coming into fellowship like me, I knew that training here would give me a very strong, well-rounded cardiology training experience. As you guys said, we have the benefit of training with world leaders in electrophysiology like Dr. Rodin and his work with genetics and inherited arrhythmias, Dr. Bill Stevenson, as you mentioned, Amr, with his VT expertise. And also to train at the center, which this year had the highest volume of transplants nationally. And so that just brings so many amazing opportunities for great heart failure learning, along with all the imaging and the cath studies that come along with it. So I totally agree with everything Maj and Amur have already said. Since I've been here, the mentorship has just been awesome. You have attendings in vascular medicine like Dr. Beckman and Dr. Aday, who are actively seeking out fellows to be involved with projects, papers or honestly just being a soundboard for our own research questions and ideas. Also, in my final year of residency, I got involved with global health in Kenya, and Vandy has continued to be supportive of this newfound interest, which is awesome. I'll have to say that I've experienced Vanderbilt really through the eyes of one of our close friends, Richa Gupta, who's made several awesome cameos on The Cardio Nerds. And one was early in her fellowship where she sent us a picture of her dissecting hearts. And I thought, wow, that is awesome. Like clearly the dedication to education is there. And then afterwards, her bringing on Dr. Lindenfeld, her mentor, and the way Dr. Lindenfeld would speak about Richa. And it was so clear that there's a, not only dedication to education, but really a dedication to mentorship that's longitudinal and promoting of the fellows. So it's really been awesome to see that through her eyes. And I know that she's so happy and, and thankful that she's been able to grow as a cardiologist and now an advanced heart failure fellow uh, there as well. So this is great to hear from your perspectives as well. Yeah, exactly. And Reach is a superstar. We love Reach. <laughs> yeah, Amit, Reach, and I were all in the same residency class. And Dr. Lindenfeld came on the show really early in the Cardio Nerds history. We had just launched maybe like a month and a half before and just totally took a chance. It was totally willing to come on and put out such amazing content and really educate our listeners. And without too many questions. It was really amazing. And then to come on for the myocarditis series, just giving up so much of her time with Dr. Mazlahi as well, we were totally blown away. You know, just seeing this commitment to cardiovascular education, this is what we're all about. Yes, and how much we love Richo. Yeah. I think this is a good <laughs> <laughs> We should do another episode. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, to be honest, the episode with Dr. Mazlahi and Dr. Lindenfeld was so great because they talked about this COVID myocarditis biobank that they wanted to create in keeping with Dr. Moslehi's prior uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis biobank. And it just showed that they are just leaders in the field. And not only that, but we're so collaborative. Yeah. 
And I feel like we're coming up with new hybrid subspecialty conditions like every month here. Like, <laughs> you know, we have uh, cardio oncology heart failure. Then there's like cardiovascular oncology. And there's just so many different combinations between all the different subspecialty disciplines here. And it's pretty awesome to see those. Different- oh, I love it. Do you want to talk a little bit about your plan for cardio oncology? Because that's a unique track that not a lot of places offer. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I came in just like Maj, the fellowship, pretty undifferentiated, but really developed an interest in cardio-oncology, mainly because I was exposed to it here. And it was a field that I hadn't really known anything about prior to starting fellowship. You know, over my first two years of training, I got to work more and more closely with Dr. Moslehi and see more and more cardio-oncology patients and realize this was something I was really passionate about and fascinated by. So I talked to Dr. Moslehi, and he's been able to craft a curriculum, essentially, for me that's focused on clinical cardio-oncology that's integrated within my third year. I think what's nice about the way he's developed the program is that there's many different flavors or ways you can be a cardio-oncology fellow. And so for someone like me who's more clinically focused, he's really developed a a lot of robust clinical exposures for me throughout the year. For folks who are more research-minded, he has separate opportunities for them where they can really spend a lot of time in the lab and integrate more translational research and clinical exposure. It's not only an interesting field, but there's a lot of different ways that you can approach the training too. That's really incredible. And on the topic of these hybrid training programs, it sounds like you guys also have this dedicated cardio OB multidisciplinary team. How does that work out? Yeah, we have different attendings who have different areas of expertise. Like Dr. Damp is our go-to cardio obstetrics expert. You know, her clinic, she will be seeing these particular patients. And as fellows, if that's something you're interested in exploring more, you can join her in clinic and then develop your own sort of clinical exposures as a result. And again, that just speaks to my earlier comment about the different ways that we're integrating cardiology into other specialties. There's this dedicated vascular clinic here where you get the opportunity to work with a lot of the leaders in vascular medicine, like Dr. Josh Beckman and some of the other names uh, Tara mentioned, and there's different opportunities to really explore those specialty clinics within cardiology and develop your own training pathway as a result, which is really awesome. Guys, this has been absolutely fantastic and just a wonderful episode to listen to and learn from. You guys are so comprehensive and really, really thoughtful, and you guys are always welcome to come back on the show and looking forward to future collaborations. Thank you so much for having us. We had a great time. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Really appreciate it. And now for the ECPR segment with our program director, Dr. Julie Damp. So hi, this is Julie Damp. I'm the program director at Vanderbilt. I am a general cardiologist. I read echoes and nuclear imaging and also have clinical area of interest in cardiobstetrics. So thank you for letting me listen in on that case. I'm so proud when I hear the fellows teaching each other this way. And I would say that it may not happen every time they're at brunch. Their conversations may not be like that. But definitely when we're at work, this is what it's like listening to the fellows teach each other and frequently teaching me. And I think all of us as faculty at Vanderbilt feel that way. There's so many things about this particular case that we could really dive into and talk about, honestly, for hours. But a couple of things that I think are so unique to this particular case and, and these things were touched on. You know, this is really a case where um, you guys said we got to take care of this individual patient. And that's so true in this particular situation. There were so many contributory factors for this patient that really led to the decision making that we did along with him and his care. And being able to take a step back, really sit down, talk to him and understand where 
he has been, where he's going, what was so important in being able to make the right decisions for him. The way that his care unfolded is actually he was giving this child up for adoption. And so that also really um, put another layer of complexity into the care there around the time of delivery. The choice of doing a C-section versus vaginal delivery, I think, is one that's really important in a lot of the cardioobstetric patients that we see. The tendency, I think, is to really think that C-section is the best way to go most of the time because it feels much more controlled. But there really are very few cardiovascular indications that make cesarean a better mode of delivery. There are ways that we can safely get these patients through vaginal deliveries, even though that's not what we did in this case, ultimately. Um, and taking everybody kind of back to your OBGYN medical school rotations, we work closely with the maternal fetal medicine and with the anesthesia teams to think about ways to do assisted second stages of labor and that type of thing to minimize the things like Valsalva that was mentioned in the discussion of this case. Another thing I think was so wonderful in taking care of this patient is the way that we were able to collaborate across disciplines. And this is really just the way it works at Vanderbilt all the time. But this is such a great example that highlights it. You know, you think about all the teams that were involved. So you had myself from a cardioobstetric standpoint, the maternal fetal medicine team, adult congenital heart disease actually collaborated on this care as well, cardiac anesthesia, cardiac surgery, and our interventionalist TAVR team. So it was really amazing to see those types of discussions be able to happen and have so many experts be able to have these risk-benefit ratios discussed with the patient, talk to him about his individual wishes and his situation, and then have that shared decision-making happen. Those are things I think are just so interesting about this case and really highlights it so well. Also, it makes me so happy hearing uh, some of the things that Tara and Maj and Amr were saying about the program. And I think it's great to have an opportunity to be able to really shine a spotlight on some of the things that I think are really unique and great about our training program. The cardiovascular medicine division uh, at Vanderbilt is a really high volume place. We have a large catchment area of referrals geographically. And so we really see a very diverse and broad array of patient presentations, patient backgrounds, and that type of thing. And we truly do have clinical and research excellence really across all the cardiology specialties. And I think so many of them were mentioned in the discussion that the fellows were just saying, you know, the transplant volume here, the faculty that we have that are really international leaders in their field. And then the fellows can have access to do training in other specialties in addition to the core subspecialties. So in adult congenital and cardio-oncology and vascular medicine and cardiobstetrics, like a lot of these areas that aren't traditional specialties. And I think the volume of our clinical services, as well as the kind of breadth and depth of the research opportunities and the mentors available to the fellows, really lets our fellows have a very well-rounded learning experience. And Umar, I think, mentioned about the flexibility that our fellows are able to have, and especially during third year of training, fellows are really able to build that time to help them get the skill set they need to launch their careers whatever path of that may look like. We've got support available that we can provide career development, whether you're going to be a physician scientist, a clinician educator, or you're going to go into clinical practice and become a practice leader in your group. So a lot of opportunities, I think, there for us to be able to develop fellows in the way that they want their career to develop and where they see themselves going. Every year, our graduating fellows, some of them join us as faculty at Vanderbilt, Some of us go and join faculty at other institutions, and then some go to practices, clinical practices across the country. So I think it just speaks to the fact that we're able to provide that type of career development in a pretty broad and flexible way. 
One of the things that I think is very unique about our program and is just cited over and over again by both fellows that come to train here, but also people that come to work here, is there's the degree of collegiality that we have within our division. And Tara and Maj and I are, you know, touched on this, just how approachable the faculty are. And that's very intentional. And I think the faculty that are here want to be in that type of learning environment with the fellows. And we really want the fellows to feel empowered to work with the faculty as peers as they're learning and understand that the faculty are accessible and approachable. And that really doesn't matter how senior or how famous those faculty may be. And honestly, this environment, this collegiality is one of the main things that has kept me personally at Vanderbilt all this time as well. Thank you so much for having us on your show. And if you are interested in learning more about our program, please check us out on Twitter or come to our website. Wow, what a fascinating case and a fabulous case discussion. This episode was such an incredible addition to the Cardi Nerds Case Report Series, Recruitment Edition. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. This series would not have been possible without collaboration from the American College of Cardiology Fellows in Training section, chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza, and our incredible production team members, Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Bibin Varghese, and Evelyn Song, all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as a team med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. We just really appreciate your uh, time on this Sunday morning. What time is it in Nashville? I have no idea. Almost noon. <laughs> Almost noon. Oh, yeah. Are we in the same time zone? Oh, no. You're just like an hour behind, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, Tommy, cut that out so I don't sound so silly. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>